Chapter Five of the Jewel of Seven Stars. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Jewel of Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. Chapter Five. More Strange Instructions. When I came from my room at half past eleven o'clock, I found all well in the sick room. The new nurse prim, neat, and watchful, sat in the chair by the bedside where Nurse Kennedy had sat last night. A little way off, between the bed and the safe, sat Dr. Winchester, alert and wakeful, but looking strange and almost comic with the respirator over mouth and nose. As I stood in the doorway looking at them, I heard a slight sound. Turning round, I saw the new detective who nodded, held up the finger of silence, and withdrew quietly. Hitherto no one of the watchers was overcome by sleep. I took a chair outside the door. As yet there was no need for me to risk coming again under the subtle influence of last night. Naturally my thoughts went revolving round the main incidents of the last day and night, and I found myself arriving at strange conclusions, doubts, conjectures. But I did not lose myself, as on last night, in trains of thought. The sense of the present was ever with me, and I really felt as should a sentry on guard. Thinking is not a slow process, and when it is earnest the time can pass quickly. It seemed a very short time indeed till the door, usually left ajar, was pulled open and Dr. Winchester emerged, taking off his respirator as he came. His act, when he had it off, was demonstrative of his keenness. He turned up the outside of the wrap and smelled it carefully. "'I am going now,' he said. "'I shall come early in the morning, unless, of course, I am sent for before. But all seems well to-night.' The next to appear was Sergeant Daw, who went quietly into the room and took the seat vacated by the doctor. I still remained outside, but every few minutes looked into the room. This was rather a form than a matter of utility, for the room was so dark that coming even from the dimly lighted corridor it was hard to distinguish anything. A little before twelve o'clock Miss Trelawney came from her room. Before coming to her father's, she went into that occupied by Nurse Kennedy. After a couple of minutes, she came out, looking, I thought, a trifle more cheerful. She had her respirator in her hand, but before putting it on, asked me if anything special had occurred since she had gone to lie down. I answered in a whisper, there was no loud talking in the house tonight, that all was safe, was well. She then put on her respirator, and I mine, and we entered the room. The detective and the nurse rose up, and we took their places. Sergeant Daw was the last to go out. He closed the door behind him as we had arranged. For a while I sat quiet, my heart beating. The place was grimly dark. The only light was a faint one from the top of the lamp which threw a white circle on the high ceiling except the emerald sheen of the shade as the light took its under edges. 
Even the light only seemed to emphasize the blackness of the shadows. These presently began to seem, as on last night, to have a sentience of their own. I did not myself feel in the least sleepy, and each time I went softly over to look at the patient, which I did about every ten minutes, I could see that Miss Trelawney was keenly alert. Every quarter of an hour one or other of the policemen looked in through the partly open door. Each time both Miss Trelawney and I said through our mufflers, All right, and the door was closed again. As the time wore on, the silence and the darkness seemed to increase. The circle of light on the ceiling was still there, but it seemed less brilliant than at first. The green edging of the lampshade became like Maori greenstone rather than emerald. The sounds of the night without the house, and the starlight spreading pale lines along the edges of the window cases, made the pall of black within more solemn and more mysterious. We heard the clock in the corridor chiming the quarters with its silver bell till two o'clock, and then a strange feeling came over me. I could see from Miss Trelawney's movement as she looked around that she also had some new sensation. The new detective had just looked in. We, too, were alone with the unconscious patient for another quarter of an hour. My heart began to beat wildly. There was a sense of fear over me. Not for myself. My fear was impersonal. It seemed as though some new person had entered the room and that a strong intelligence was awake close to me. Something brushed against my leg. I put my hand down hastily and touched the furry coat of Silvio. With a very faint faraway sound of a snarl he turned and scratched at me. I felt blood on my hand. I rose gently and came over to the bedside. Miss Trelawney, too, had stood up and was looking behind her, as though there was something close to her. Her eyes were wild, and her breast rose and fell as though she were fighting for air. When I touched her, she did not seem to feel me. She worked her hands in front of her, as though she was fending off something. There was not an instant to lose. I seized her in my arms and rushed over to the door, threw it open, and strode into the passage, calling loudly, "'Help! Help!' In an instant the two detectives, Mrs. Grant, and the nurse appeared on the scene. Close on their heels came several of the servants, both men and women. Immediately Mrs. Grant came near enough. I placed Miss Trelawney in her arms and rushed back into the room, turning up the electric light as soon as I could lay my hand on it. Sergeant Daw and the nurse followed me. We were just in time. Close under the great safe, where on the two successive nights he had been found, lay Mr. Trelawney, with his left arm, bare save for the bandages, stretched out. Close by his side was a leaf-shaped Egyptian knife, which had lain amongst the curios on the shelf of the broken cabinet. Its point was stuck in the parquet floor, whence had been removed the blood-stained rug. But there was no sign of disturbance anywhere, nor any sign of anyone or anything unusual. 
The policeman and I searched the room accurately, whilst the nurse and two of the servants lifted the wounded man back to bed, but no sign or clue could we get. Very soon Miss Trelawney returned to the room. She was pale but collected. When she came close to me, she said in a low voice, I felt myself fainting. I did not know why, but I was afraid. The only other shock I had was when Miss Trelawney cried out to me as I placed my hand on the bed to lean over and look carefully at her father. "'You are wounded. Look! Look, your hand is bloody. There is blood on the sheets.' I had, in the excitement, quite forgotten Silvio's scratch. As I looked at it, the recollection came back to me, but before I could say a word, Miss Trelawney had caught hold of my hand and lifted it up. When she saw the parallel lines of the cuts, she cried out again, "'It is the same wound as father's!' Then she laid my hand down gently but quickly, and said to me and to Sergeant Daw, "'Come to my room. Silvio is there in his basket.' We followed her, and found Silvio sitting in his basket, awake. He was licking his paws. The detective said, "'He is there, sure enough, but why licking his paws?' Margaret, Miss Trelawney, gave a moan as she bent over and took one of the forepaws in her hand, but the cat seemed to resent it and snarled. At that Mrs. Grant came into the room. When she saw that we were looking at the cat, she said, the nurse tells me that Silvio was asleep on Nurse Kennedy's bed ever since you went to your father's room until a while ago. He came there just after you had gone to Master's room. Nurse says that Nurse Kennedy is moaning and muttering in her sleep as though she had a nightmare. I think we should send for Dr. Winchester. Do so at once, please, said Miss Trelawney, and we went back to the room. For a while Miss Trelawney stood looking at her father, with her brows wrinkled. Then, turning to me as though her mind were made up, she said, "'Don't you think we should have a consultation on father? Of course I have every confidence in Dr. Winchester. He seems an immensely clever young man. But he is a young man, and there must be men who have devoted themselves to this branch of science.' Such a man would have more knowledge and more experience, and his knowledge and experience might help to throw light on poor father's case. As it is, Dr. Winchester seems to be quite in the dark. Oh, I don't know what to do. It is all so terrible. Here she broke down a little and cried, and I tried to comfort her. Dr. Winchester arrived quickly. His first thought was for his patient. But when he found him without further harm, he visited Nurse Kennedy. When he saw her, a hopeful look came into his eyes. Taking a towel, he dipped a corner of it in cold water and flicked on the face. The skin colored, and she stirred slightly. He said to the new nurse, Sister Doris, he called her, "'She is all right. She will wake in a few hours at latest.' She may be dizzy and distraught at first, or perhaps hysterical. If so, you know how to treat her. Yes, sir, answered Sister Doris demurely, 
and we went back to Mr. Trelawney's room. As soon as we had entered, Mrs. Grant and the nurse went out so that only Dr. Winchester, Miss Trelawney, and myself remained in the room. When the door had been closed, Dr. Winchester asked me as to what had occurred. I told him fully, giving exactly every detail so far as I could remember. Throughout my narrative, which did not take long, however, he kept asking me questions as to who had been present and the order in which each one had come into the room. He asked other things, but nothing of any importance. These were all that took my attention or remained in my memory. When our conversation was finished, he said in a very decided way indeed to Miss Trelawney, I think, Miss Trelawney, that we had better have a consultation on this case. She answered at once, seemingly a little to his surprise. I am glad you have mentioned it. I quite agree. Who would you suggest? Have you any choice yourself? he asked. Any one to whom your father is known? Has he ever consulted anyone? Not to my knowledge, but I hope you will choose whoever you think would be best. My dear father should have all the help that can be had, and I shall be deeply obliged by your choosing. Who is the best man in London, anywhere else, in such a case? There are several good men, but they are scattered all over the world. Somehow the brain specialist is born, not made, though a lot of hard work goes to the completing of him and fitting him for his work. He comes from no country. The most daring investigator up to the present is Chiuni, the Japanese, but he is rather a surgical experimentalist than a practitioner. There is Zammerfest of Uppsala and Fenelon of the University of Paris and Morfessi of Naples. These, of course, are in addition to our own men, Morrison of Aberdeen and Richardson of Birmingham. But before them all I would put Frere of King's College. Of all that I have named, he best unites theory and practice. He has no hobbies, that have been discovered at all events, and his experience is immense. It is the regret of all of us who admire him that the nerve so firm and the hand so dexterous must yield to time. For my own part, I would rather have Frere than any one living. Then, said Miss Trelawney decisively, let us have Dr. Frere. By the way, is he doctor or mister? As early as we can get him in the morning. A weight seemed removed from him and he spoke with greater ease and geniality than he had yet shown. "'He is Sir James Frere. I shall go to him myself as early as it is possible to see him, and shall ask him to come here at once.' Then, turning to me, he said, "'You had better let me dress your hand.' "'It is nothing,' I said. "'Nevertheless, it should be seen to.' A scratch from any animal might turn out dangerous. There is nothing like being safe. I submitted. Forthwith he began to dress my hand. He examined with a magnifying glass the several parallel wounds, and compared them with the slip of blotting paper marked with Silvio's claws, which he took from his pocket-book. 
he put back the paper, simply remarking, "'It's a pity that Silvio slips in, and out, just when he shouldn't.' The morning wore slowly on. By ten o'clock Nurse Kennedy had so far recovered that she was able to sit up and talk intelligibly. But she was still hazy in her thoughts, and could not remember anything that had happened on the previous night, after her taking her place by the sickbed. As yet, she seemed neither to know nor care what had happened. It was nearly eleven o'clock when Dr. Winchester returned with Sir James Frere. Somehow I felt my heart sink when, from the landing, I saw them in the hall below. I knew that Miss Trelawney was to have the pain of telling yet another stranger of her ignorance of her father's life. Sir James Frere was a man who commanded attention followed by respect. He knew so thoroughly what he wanted himself that he placed at once on one side all wishes and ideas of less definite persons. The mere flash of his piercing eyes, or the set of his resolute mouth, or the lowering of his great eyebrows, seemed to compel immediate and willing obedience to his wishes. Somehow, when we had all been introduced and he was well amongst us, all sense of mystery seemed to melt away. It was with a hopeful spirit that I saw him pass into the sick room with Dr. Winchester. They remained in the room a long time. Once they sent for the nurse, the new one, Sister Doris, but she did not remain long. Again they both went into Nurse Kennedy's room. He sent out the nurse attendant on her. Dr. Winchester told me afterward that Nurse Kennedy, though she was ignorant of later matters, gave full and satisfactory answers to all Dr. Frere's questions relating to her patient up to the time she became unconscious. Then they went to the study, where they remained so long, and their voices raised in heated discussion seemed in such determined opposition that I began to feel uneasy. As for Miss Trelawney, she was almost in a state of collapse from nervousness before they joined us. Poor girl! She had had a sadly anxious time of it, and her nervous strength had almost broken down. They came out at last, Sir James first, his grave face looking as unenlightening as that of the Sphinx. Dr. Winchester followed him closely. His face was pale, but with that kind of pallor which looked like a reaction. It gave me the idea that it had been red not long before. Sir James asked that Miss Trelawney would come into the study. He suggested that I should come also. When we had entered, Sir James turned to me and said, "'I understand from Dr. Winchester that you are a friend of Miss Trelawney, and that you have already considerable knowledge of this case. Perhaps it will be well that you should be with us. I know you already as a keen lawyer, Mr. Ross, though I never had the pleasure of meeting you. As Dr. Winchester tells me that there are some strange matters outside this case which seem to puzzle him, and others, and in which he thinks you may yet be specially interested, it might be as well that you should know every phase of the case. For myself, I do not take much account of mysteries, except those of science, 
and as there seems to be some idea of an attempt at assassination or robbery, all I can say is that if assassins were at work, they ought to take some elementary lessons in anatomy before their next job, for they seem thoroughly ignorant. If robbery were their purpose, they seem to have worked with marvelous inefficiency. That, however, is not my business. Here he took a big pinch of snuff, and turning to Miss Trelawney, went on. Now, as to the patient. Leaving out the cause of his illness, all we can say at present is that he appears to be suffering from a marked attack of catalepsy. At present nothing can be done except to sustain his strength. The treatment of my friend, Dr. Winchester, is mainly such as I approve of, and I am confident that should any slight change arise, he will be able to deal with it satisfactorily. It is an interesting case, most interesting, and should any new or abnormal development arise, I shall be happy to come at any time. There is just one thing to which I wish to call your attention, and I put it to you, Miss Trelawney, directly, since it is your responsibility. Dr. Winchester informs me that you are not yourself free in the matter, but are bound by an instruction given by your father in case just such a condition of things should arise. I would strongly advise that the patient be removed to another room, or, as an alternative, that those mummies and all such things should be removed from his chamber. Why, it's enough to put any man into an abnormal condition, to have such an assemblage of horrors round him, and to breathe the atmosphere which they exhale. You have evidence already of how such mephitic odor may act. That nurse, Kennedy, I think you said, doctor, isn't yet out of her state of catalepsy, and you, Mr. Ross, have, I am told, experienced something of the same effects. I know this. Here his eyebrows came down more than ever, and his mouth hardened. If I were in charge here, I should insist on the patient having a different atmosphere, or I would throw up the case. Dr. Winchester already knows that I can only be again consulted on this condition being fulfilled. But I trust that you will see your way, as a good daughter to my mind should, to looking to your father's health and sanity, rather than to any whim of his, whether supported or not by a foregoing fear, or by any number of penny-dreadful mysteries. The day has hardly come yet, and I am glad to say, when the British Museum and St. Thomas's Hospital have exchanged their normal functions. Good day, Miss Trelawney. I earnestly hope that I may soon see your father restored. Remember that should you fulfill the elementary condition which I have laid down, I am at your service day or night. Good morning, Mr. Ross. I hope you will be able to report to me soon, Dr. Winchester. When he had gone, we stood silent till the rumble of his carriage wheels died away. The first to speak was Dr. Winchester. I think it well to say to my mind, speaking purely as a physician, he is quite right. I feel as if I could have assaulted him when he made it a condition of not giving up the case, but all the same he is right as to treatment. He does not understand that there is something odd about this special case, 
and he will not realize the knot that we are all tied up in by Mr. Trelawney's instructions. Of course, he was interrupted by Miss Trelawney. Dr. Winchester, do you too wish to give up the case, or are you willing to continue it under the conditions you know? Give it up? Less now than ever, Miss Trelawney. I shall never give it up, so long as life is left to him or any of us. She said nothing, but held out her hand, which he took warmly. Now, said she, if Sir James Frere is a type of the cult of specialists, I want no more of them. To start with, he does not seem to know any more than you do about my father's condition, and if he were a hundredth part as much interested in it as you are, he would not stand on such punctilio. Of course, I am only too anxious about my poor father, and if I can see a way to meet either of Sir James Frere's conditions, I shall do so. I shall ask Mr. Marvin to come here today, and advise me as to the limit of father's wishes. If he thinks I am free to act in any way on my own responsibility, I shall not hesitate to do so. Then Dr. Winchester took his leave. Miss Trelawney sat down and wrote a letter to Mr. Marvin, telling him of the state of affairs, and asking him to come and see her, and to bring with him any papers which might throw any light on the subject. She sent the letter off with a carriage to bring back the solicitor. We waited with what patience we could for his coming. It is not a very long journey for oneself from Kensington Palace Gardens to Lincoln's Inn Fields, but it seemed endlessly long when waiting for someone else to take it. All things, however, are amenable to time. It was less than an hour, all told, when Mr. Marvin was with us. He recognized Miss Trelawney's impatience, and when he had learned sufficient of her father's illness, he said to her, "'Whenever you are ready, I can go with you into particulars regarding your father's wishes.' "'Whenever you like,' she said, with an evident ignorance of his meaning. "'Why not now?' He looked at me, as to a fellow man of business, and stammered out, "'We are not alone.' "'I have brought Mr. Ross here on purpose,' she answered. "'He knows so much at present that I want him to know more.' The solicitor was a little disconcerted, a thing which those knowing him only in courts would hardly have believed. He answered, however, with some hesitation, "'But, my dear young lady, your father's wishes. Confidence between father and child.' Here she interrupted him. There was a tinge of red in her pale cheeks as she did so. "'Do you really think that applies to the present circumstances, Mr. Marvin? My father never told me anything of his affairs, and I can now, in this sad extremity, only learn his wishes through a gentleman who is a stranger to me, and of whom I never even heard till I got my father's letter, written to be shown to me only in extremity. Mr. Ross is a new friend, but he has all my confidence, and I should like him to be present. Unless, of course, she added, such a thing is forbidden by my father. Oh, forgive me, Mr. Marvin, if I seem rude, but I have been in such dreadful trouble and anxiety lately that I have hardly command of myself. 
She covered her eyes with her hand for a few seconds. We two men looked at each other and waited, trying to appear unmoved. She went on more firmly. She had recovered herself. Please, please do not think I am ungrateful to you for your kindness in coming here, and so quickly. I really am grateful, and I have every confidence in your judgment. If you wish, or think it best, we can be alone. I stood up, but Mr. Marvin made a dissentient gesture. He was evidently pleased with her attitude. There was geniality in his voice and manner as he spoke. Not at all, not at all. There is no restriction on your father's part, and on my own I am quite willing. Indeed, all told, it may be better. From what you have said of Mr. Trelawney's illness and the other incidental matters, it will be well in case of any grave eventuality that it was understood from the first that circumstances were ruled by your father's own imperative instructions. For, please understand me, his instructions are imperative, most imperative. They are so unyielding that he has given me a power of attorney, under which I have undertaken to act, authorizing me to see his written wishes carried out. Please believe me once for all that he intended fully everything mentioned in that letter to you. Whilst he is alive, he is to remain in his own room, and none of his property is to be removed from it under any circumstances whatever. He has even given an inventory of the articles which are not to be displaced. Miss Trelawney was silent. She looked somewhat distressed. So, thinking that I understood the immediate cause, I asked, "'May we see the list?' Miss Trelawney's face at once brightened, but it fell again as the lawyer answered promptly, he was evidently prepared for the question, "'Not unless I am compelled to take action on the power of attorney. I have brought that instrument with me. You will recognize, Mr. Ross,' He said this with a sort of business conviction which I had noticed in his professional work, as he handed me the deed. How strongly it is worded, and how the grantor made his wishes apparent in such a way as to leave no loophole. It is his own wording, except for certain legal formalities, and I assure you I have seldom seen a more ironclad document. Even I myself have no power to make the slightest relaxation of the instructions without committing a distinct breach of faith. And that, I need not tell you, is impossible. He evidently added the last words in order to prevent an appeal to his personal consideration. He did not like the seeming harshness of his words, however, for he added, I do hope, Miss Trelawney, that you understand that I am willing frankly and unequivocally willing, to do anything I can, within the limits of my power, to relieve your distress. But your father had, in all his doings, some purpose of his own which he did not disclose to me. So far as I can see, there is not a word of his instructions that he had not thought over fully. Whatever idea he had in his mind was the idea of a lifetime. He had studied it in every possible phase, and was prepared to guard it at every point. Now, I fear I have distressed you, and I am truly sorry for it, 
for I see you have much, too much, to bear already. But I have no alternative. If you want to consult me at any time about anything, I promise you I will come without a moment's delay, at any hour of the day or night. There is my private address. He scribbled in his pocketbook as he spoke and under it the address of my club, where I am generally to be found in the evening. He tore out the paper and handed it to her. She thanked him. He shook hands with her and with me and withdrew. As soon as the hall door was shut on him, Mrs. Grant tapped at the door and came in. There was such a look of distress in her face that Miss Trelawney stood up, deadly white, and asked her, "'What is it, Mrs. Grant?' "'What is it? Any new trouble?' "'I grieve to say, miss, that the servants, all but two, have given notice and want to leave the house today. They have talked the matter over among themselves. The butler has spoken for the rest. He says as how they are willing to forego their wages and even to pay their legal obligations instead of notice, but that go today they must.' "'What reason do they give?' "'None, miss. They say as how they're sorry, but that they've nothing to say. "'I asked Jane, the upper housemaid, miss, who is not with the rest, but stops on, "'and she tells me, confidential, that they've got some notion in their silly heads that the house is haunted.' "'We ought to have laughed, but we didn't. "'I could not look in Miss Trelawney's face and laugh.' The pain and horror there showed no hidden paroxysm of fear. There was a fixed idea of which this was a confirmation. For myself it seemed as if my brain had found a voice. But the voice was not complete. There was some other thought, darker and deeper, which lay behind it, whose voice had not sounded as yet. End of chapter 5 Recording by Roger Moline